Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 766. Uh, what do you got on the Nerdist community? Uh, I got uh, there's a uh, Los Angeles based country music act that is uh, going on right now that is called Garth Vader. Fantastic, and I feel like there's maybe this might be the most Nerdist thing we've ever been sent for a community corkboard. But yeah, he's uh, his the doing his debut show on December 12th, the Dragonfly in Hollywood, and uh, let's all go see Garth Vader together, guys, because. If there's two things that needed to be together, it's Star Wars and '90s country music. Well, I, I used to, I had a joke about uh, Chris Gaines being Garth Vader. Chris so Gaines guys, was the dark hair. No, I'm trans. very fi- okay. Chris as a pop culture libertine as I am. I'm very aware of the work of Chris oh, Gaines. Thank you. Very he, much. Remember when Garth Brooks hosted SNL and then Chris Gaines was the musical act? I mean, what a genius! Oh my God. turn of events <laughs> that happened there. What do you want to promote, man, Myra? Uh, when's this come out? Today? Yeah. Oh, uh, this weekend at the Ice House, 7 p.m., uh, Kevin Smith and I are doing a live talk salad and scrambled eggs. Uh, you can go see us talk for an hour about uh, bullshit and then a little bit about Frasier. It's going to be a hoot. Please come see us, and then you can check uh, CSMOD Live for other dates. So they're they're going to do talk salad for a while, and in a few years, Joe McHale's just going to reboot it as the salad. Oh, oh that'd be good. Can I plug, also, this Friday, 9 p.m. at Nerd Melt, I'm doing my album recording, an evening with Kyle Clark. Fucking yeah, you fucking yeah. promote that, of course! <laughs> yeah, December 4th, 9 o'clock at uh, Nerd Melt, I'm doing an evening with Kyle Clark. And How much do tickets cost? Uh, $8. That is a Go much to better nerdmelt deal than... Go yeah, you can get tickets. Uh, uh, it's, and it's selling pretty good, so you might want to go get your tickets. Better deal than um, us. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, and I'm recording it for an album. It's going to be pressed to vinyl. It should be out next year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, very someday, someday you'll release a CD. Nah, never. That's the goal. No CDs. <laughs> Cassette vinyl. Just all the... tracks coming. Yeah, and then a wax cylinder. Like Neil Young. <laughs> this episode is Kelly Carlin, who's promoting her book, A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. Kelly's uh, George's daughter, George Carlin's daughter. And she is... So fucking rad. I mean, this it, it, you really need to get to know Kelly. She's not just someone who's trying to... I'm benefiting because my dad was famous. She is, uh, she is, in her own right, a brilliant psychologist. Uh, also does her own stuff. And uh, and just a generally warm, gracious human being. She's got a podcast. Being. She's got a radio show. Uh, she's fantastic. Now, this book is available wherever books are sold. If you buy them in this real world or the fake digital universe, yeah, the uh, Amazon bookstore in Washington, you can all the way. You can find the bookstore that's left. In the, <laughs> brick and you can go to Powell's. You can go to and Powell's it's for up sure in Portland. Be there. Yeah, it'll yeah. be there. It is the, along with the man in robe who's like, "These are the last of the books." <laughs> 
<laughs> It'll be like a road warrior, but, we, but just with books. Said, we hold the torch light. <laughs> Here's Nurse Podcast number 766 with Kelly Carlin. Now entering Nerdist.com. What's up, K-Car? Oh, you know, just been blabbing about my fucking life for two and a half months. <laughs> you're the last, That's what happens when you write a book. You're the last, last stop time. on my um, on your press tour. Massive press On my book massive tour. press book tour. Like after this at 12.15 or whatever time we're done, I'm like doing tequila shots or something. I don't know. I'm done. That sounds healthy. Hey, I... Uh... <laughs> I don't do tequila shots. Okay, right. <laughs> uh, even when I drank, it was rare that I could do that. <sighs> Those were the worst... Because the thing I remember about beer is that it just sort of it glided you into <laughs> yes. feeling. But tequila is just like you do one, you go, I didn't feel anything. So you do another one. All of a sudden you're like, I want to fight someone. Like you just, yeah. it's the worst. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't do tequila well. I, it's not something my body metabolizes. Really. <laughs> Does anyone metabolize it well? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Some people, you know what? People who love it think they metabolize it well, but we all know they don't. I mean, first of all, tequila tastes rotten. Like everyone has to, you have to suck a lime to, to deal with it. <laughs> and salt. And salt. And salt. And salt. <laughs> like, not just a <laughs> light. get through it. Not just a dash of salt. <laughs> right. A like, rail of salt. <laughs> <laughs> you have to snort a rail of salt. You have to, and then beyond that, uh, then you have to get it down. And then having bad tequila. the drunkenness isn't even that great. It was a, I guess maybe not. Maybe I just yeah. never had the no, good. Yeah, you just never had the you, good. You weren't around long enough to have some of the movie star tequila. I'll tell you that, Don, I wasn't, I wasn't rich uh, at that time. Right. What? There's a Don Julio, 1942, is the name of that. It's the greatest shot of anything I've ever had in my life. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. It's some good tequila. And uh, so glad to announce they're sponsoring the podcast. No, they're definitely not sponsoring the podcast. <laughs> they're definitely not sponsoring. I'm more fascinated by the worm in a bottle than I would be the actual tequila. Yeah, like, the worm is is attractive in a worm-like th- way. I don't know. I, I think I might have had a bite of the worm in high school because I would do things like that in high school. Sure. And that is not a euphemism. You worm biter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I was on your show a couple of years ago. You were like one of my first guests. I think I was one of your first guests. Yes, in a hotel room in Canada. Was no, it? we were in San Francisco. San Francisco. We were doing all doing Sketchfest. Oh, it was Sketchfest? That yeah, was what we were doing. Yeah, that was fun. It was. And then, when did you decide to write a book? Well, I've been working on it for a long time. Like 15 years ago, I did my first solo show. So I've been doing family stories. Um, And then about two years before my dad died, I started outlining this book. And um, uh, as was was my dad's nature at the time and a few other times, would say things like, "Ah, really, you're doing that autobiographical stuff still? (laughs) (laughs) He he, he was a little uncomfortable with that. He, He kept his memoir in the computer till he died so that I would have to publish it because he didn't even publish it. It was, it was ready to go. He could have published another book while he was alive. But he he didn't didn't want to. No, it wasn't his thing. So I, um, and then four years ago I pitched it and nothing went through, but two years ago they came to me. St. Martin's press came to me and said, Hey, we love your solo show. Would you like to write a book? And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, (laughs) it's already done. When people, do you get tired of people asking you about your dad? 
I mean, yes, yeah, so that's sense- p- part of the reason I. I mean, yes. So you can just hand him a book and go here. Because the, the the big question I always have gotten in the last seven years since my dad died was, "Wow, what was it like growing up with George Carlin as a dad?" How do you even answer that? Right. So now I just hand him a three hundred page book. <laughs> um, although the the growing up part, the kid part, is only like seventy five pages, but. Uh, and you know what? I love my dad. I love his comedy. I love his fans. I love all of that. But I'm ready to not talk about it anymore. So I'm after I'm, this podcast. After this podcast, Chris, <laughs> I'm willing for the next 42 minutes. This is it. This is it. <laughs> to talk You're about purging. It. How therapeutic. It's very therapeutic, and uh, and I'm so grateful. I mean, really, my gratitude for the comedy world embracing me. Um, people really connecting to my story, um, loving my story, uh, you know, next to what it's like to know about George Carlin as a dad and stuff like that. I'm just, I'm grateful for all these opportunities. It's very amazing and lovely. And, um, and I'm ready to talk about, you know, things like, uh, accelerator particle physics and, uh, um, uh, shoes. <laughs> accelerator <laughs> particle physics shoes. Yeah, you know, a, par- a shoe that is also uh, a particle accelerator. Why not? Sure, just other topics. And then would you're be clashing fun. particles into each other as you're walking. We are absolutely. We are particle accelerators. We didn't even know it. I would love to know what is important for you that people know about you that isn't has nothing to do with your dad. Um, God, God. Chris, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. I'm going to go in the other room and weep for 10 minutes. And then I will be back. No. uh, That's a great, great fucking question. Um, You know, I guess I what I want people to know most is that I have a I have a great dark sense of humor, like my dad. And yet I also have a lot of empathy and compassion for the world and I'm kind of a seeker and someone who wants to would love to heal the world and um you know hope hopes the species is evolving a little bit you know I mean really the evidence isn't on my side <laughs> um yeah We're evolving into extinction <laughs> yeah we might be uh I don't know I there you know that I you know I've been doing my own podcast for separate from comedy and stuff like that for about four years. And I, I get to talk about all the things I love on there, you know, which is philosophy and psychology. I have a master's in psychology. You know, I'm a Jungian depth psychologist in my heart. I'm a... Mm, uh, Niles was Jungian and uh, Fraser was... Right, yeah. was Freudian. That's, yeah. a, that's the second or third person who said to me last week. I'm like, I forgot about yeah. that, that Niles was Jungian. Mm-hmm. Was he really... I don't well, know if he was or not. Drifted away from Chris that is looking at us season. like we are speaking Greek right not now. Not at all. <laughs> Matt, Matt will go into Fraser talk, and, then, and, and I am very well acquaintance with Fraser, but I know. I think you need to get to know him a little better. I don't know if I do. <laughs> I think your life's complete Matt, without. I don't hear the blues of Colin. Well, <laughs> Fraser's there to answer anyway. You don't not, if you not. can say that, you know enough. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. all you need to yeah. know. I know the fucking end credit song. Exactly. I know that he wrote it. I know yeah. about um, j- Jitters. He didn't write it. He just sang it. I thought he wrote it. Yeah. Are you sure it, he didn't write it? I bet it's an actual real song. 
Though I have a four and a half minute version of it on my phone. If you'd like, to. no, really, I'm gonna I, bet I think you, we're okay. I'm going to bet you that he had a writing credit on it because that is a cash cow, and a lot of people in television. If you are a showrunner or the star of a show, a lot of people will attempt to have a credit in the writing of the theme song because that is a fucking automatic wow, that's interesting. paycheck that you get every single time an episode airs. So I've missed my calling. I need to be yeah, writing show, be show writing sitcom show tunes. Yeah. <laughs> seriously. like wow. the, 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 It is a tremendous business, and so a lot of people will kind of sandwich in. I mean, I've known people on television shows who've, just like thrown dumb little songs in shows, right? So they can they get... get a residual check separately every, every single time. Interesting, so. and it's a whole different royalty scale. And it blah, is. Blah, blah, blah. It is. Yes. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Danny Elfman just from The Simpsons. I'm theme, sure. If he just right. did The Simpsons, <laughs> and nothing theme, else ever, and right. nothing else ever would be an insane paycheck <laughs> for him to be getting yeah. all, all the time. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that? The weirdest thing, how little things like that are the cash cow of this business, and and probably still are, even though this there's not a lot of cash cow in this business left. Well, th- now attention spans are so short. Theme songs are like, <laughs> and then it's like then the show, the show. It's a theme bar. Yeah, it is. It's basically just like three notes. I mean, I think you probably still get paid the same. You might. You might. Yeah. Like Lost was just. And that was it. It was like half the THX thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so That's great. Anyway, I don't really know that much about Frasier. Matt knows all about Frasier, which you can hear separately in his podcast, Talk Salad and Scrambled Egg with Kevin <laughs> Smith. True story. It's available on the Smodco Network. True. Is it really? I'm on the Smodcast Network. Are you? Yeah, Waking from the American oh, Dream. Right. Yeah, well, Kevin and I do Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs now. Oh, We're 17 you do? episodes in. That's probably why you don't. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen Kevin busy. in a while. He's been rather busy or He's avoiding me. One or what the other. The fuck? Huh. <laughs> he just wanted to get you on the network and that was it. That was it. He just wanted to podcast wine you dine you and sixty nine you, I guess. Uh podcast sure way why not? in a podcast way. I, I don't know what even what that means. I'm honored that you uh, had me on one of your first episodes and that you continued to do the show for many years. You must have found it You're probably gonna give up and then Chris came on and you were like, I gotta keep <laughs> Thank going. Thank God. <laughs> You must have found it somewhat cathartic to be able to have, uh, a, I mean, so much about a podcast and certainly why I created this one was just as a way to establish one little plot of dirt yep. with my identity in it that no one could fuck with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have two I have two things I do, one of which is the Smodcast thing, which is where I have found my little plot of dirt. And then the thing I had you on is my Sirius XM show where I talk to people who tell jokes mm-hmm. and get to explore the comedic mind and the comedic life uh, because I can't get enough of that. I'm fascinated by what brings people onto a stage and makes them want to have to make other people laugh because I don't have that in me. It's because you, you're healthier. <laughs> I, I, it is. I think it's a pre-wiring thing. I don't think it's an, I think it's a nerd. A nature, nature thing, not, not nature. a nurture thing. I think it's probably both. Do you think it's both? I do think it's both because I think if my parents hadn't nurtured it, mm. you know, my parents recognized early on that I was drawn. I mean, from when and I was yet, like four or five years old. there's comics who use it as, well, it might still be nurture, though, because if they're rebelling against their parents, then they're still in relationship with their parents. So, therefore nurture the environment has something to do with it because I mean, it doesn't net physically mean nurture I mean, I mean, most things are a combination of I both. Th- you're probably and, and right. so it, but i will say that i think and I, I do think about it a lot especially when people go i've been thinking about doing stand-up and i go listen if you get up on stage 
and you bomb terribly and you hate yourself, but then you you, have the to next day anyway. you go, I got to get up again anyway. I go, you're in. I, I go, good news, bad news. Good news, you should be a comic. Bad news, you're probably broken inside. <laughs> okay. I think all comics are probably yes. like it is, that's bad news, bad news. It's a, it's a weird thing to want to get up in front of a group of strangers and seek any kind of validation. Yes, I agree. And no I, matter, I have that part. No I have matter that how thing. hip a comic says they are, like, I don't care what the audience like, well, they, then you wouldn't do it. They, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they're really ultimately wanting the laugh. I mean, they're wanting the thing that they're there to, to do. Or at least to control an environment. Yes. Even if it's not a laugh, even if it's just like, well, I'm going to take a shit on stage and just to... <laughs> You know, just to freak people but out. But see, I get that too because of the – I mean I've been doing a solo show for four years and some storytelling and stuff. And now I've had enough stage time. I didn't have a lot of stage time before I started this last solo show. Um, but I have enough now where I can think on stage and know and feel the energy. And there's that thing you're doing where you're shaping the energy in the room. You're playing with it. You are you are manipulating it. You're sure. manipulating people. And uh, there is a great sense of power and satisfaction in that, for sure. And I, so I have that part. But it's the having to make people laugh. I don't know if it's because my dad was who he was or if that just for me just doesn't I'm seem sorry, like – who's your father again? Um, Shecky Green. <laughs> oh, my God. I have oh, so many Shecky. questions. <laughs> Good. I hope I can answer them now. <laughs> what, what, what consistencies have you seen with all the comedy people? There must be some, especially if you're a, if, if, if you if you have a if you have a psychology background. Yes. What, what shards do you see that are consistent in everyone? You know, I thought I would see like more like the thesis that everyone's broken in misery, loves comedy kind of thing. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, uh, the one thing I do know is that comedians are all people who have in them somewhere a sense of being the outsider because you have to be an outsider to be an, an observer of the world. And that's what comedians do ultimately, whether they're observing their own life or observing the culture, they're standing outside of it as a witness perspective and watching it all go down. And so there's this natural, I think, outsider perspective that's whether nurture or nature within a, a, a comic and gives them the ability to to be the reporter for us and do it in a way that's funny. But, you know, most of the people I talk to, I think, also have a real sense of loving that thing where you get the perspective, you get what, you know, you get to say the thing that's so uniquely your perspective that hopefully no one else, that really is truly your unique perspective. And it's that lane where, you know, where people go, oh man, you know, I wish I'd thought of that. Or it's, it seems so obvious now that they've said it, you know? And, and I think like for me, that's why I was not just because I was his daughter, but such a fan of my dad's work was because he would come out and he would say stuff and it would be shit that you've, you've never thought of it that way before. And you're like, Jesus, wow, that's amazing. And so there's like this little experience of like, um, as an audience member of like getting your brain, like just expands a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I know that when I find that lane in my work, whether it's through my writing or my performing, um, there's such a joy in knowing like, oh, I'm going to blow these people's minds with this little slice of something that they've hopefully never thought of or seen before. Right. You know, there's a great joy in that. And and then you have to be willing to get on a stage and risk it working or not. You right. Know? So. Well, I mean, whereas, you know, I would say your dad was probably the greatest observational comic of all time. He was – it was different 
than the prior school of comedy, which ultimately became these are all compl- I'm just laying my life out on the, right. and this is I'm I'm completely opening up and and I feel like Pry prior what not prior oh no yes Richard Pryor yeah I Richard apologize. Pryor yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like there is a tr- there's a bit of a trend in comedy now which is a lot in the prior camp. Of Agreed. Like, I'm I'm going to be as honest. I mean, I'm even doing it now. Well, I mean, I'm doing it in my own stand-up and now. I, and that's what my work is ultimately. Too. Yeah. I'm much more prior than Carlin. <laughs> that's a great quote. It is. I mean, it's true. I, it's what I do. I, I, I do autobiographical material, whether it's in my solo show or in my essays or on my podcast. I talk about my life all the time. Certainly my book is a memoir. So, yeah. I mean, I even say I talk about an antidote in the book when I first – when I mentioned to my dad, I'm going to do this memoir, and he was like, oh, you know, you know, um, I thought you were kind of done with this autobiographical stuff, and I'd done a solo show, like three performances of it, so I'd never had my thing. And he's like, yeah, you know, because, you know, this is his philosophy. Real artists start with their autobiographical material. He said, like me, like class clown, occupation fool. I did all my autobiographical stuff, and then I moved on to other stuff. Oh my God, that's great. I would have thought it's the reverse. Right. And so, and then I'm sitting there like just going, but I love Spalding Gray and that's who like my hero is and that's who I want to be. So, um, and then I like got home and thought, you know, I didn't have the zinger for my dad, you know, because I never did because I was, you know, that person. And then I thought, yeah, I should have said to him, gee, dad, I don't think Richard Pryor ever got over his autobiographical <laughs> work because those really are the two lanes that you're, that you're in. And you're right. Most people these days are sourcing from their life and have been for quite a while. Cause I always thought the, and I'll, I'll make two points about this. But first of all, I always thought it was when you're a younger comic, you're very external because you're just you're trying to relate. You're trying to you're trying to relate to the audience, right. In any way that you can. Yes. So you talk about the biggest things that everyone sees. Why is this thing named this? And why is this? And why and is this? In the '60s, my dad kind of he pioneered that. Yes. Uh, but because he pioneered that. So much after him was like, oh, well, you're just doing – I mean, it's like yeah. he he kind of – he fished those waters so much yeah. that it was – it's difficult. So now it's like the only thing you really have left to explore that no one else can go – someone's already talked about that is you. Yep. And so I feel like <clears> – <throat> That's true. The pa- I feel like the typical path of a comedian and not always, but what I see a lot of is – External, external, a little bit internal, a little bit more internal, and then all of a sudden when you you just keep going inward. So it's interesting to me to hear that he did the reverse. And I will say I'm sick to fucking death of comedy nerds online saying real comedy is dot, dot, dot. Real comedy is that comedy is fucking whatever. Comedy is what makes you laugh, It right? is to you. <laughs> That's comedy can be autobiographical. It can yeah. be observational. It could be two-line jokes. It could be authentic. You could be lying the entire yeah. time. It there's could be no, prop comedy. I mean, that stuff still matter. works. It doesn't matter. Like, there's yeah. no such thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> prop comedy? Come on. Jonathan Winters? Like, come yeah. on. All right. I mean, he uh, was the prop. He yeah. was, yeah. A lot of times, he was the ultimate prop. This is true. This is true. Um, but, uh, you know, I just don't think... I think comedy is whatever path you yeah. take. And-, and I think because of the age we're in with, you know, narcissistic age that we are in. It's so bad. It is. that we're, We are talking ourselves about ourselves to death. And I think like it's – and yet it is. It's like this endless source of fascination we have with ourselves. I'm totally guilty of it. I totally get it. Um, and yet there is an impulse in me now – 
to now after now that this book is done and when people ask me the question, so what was it like growing up with George Carlin? I can just hand them the book. Yes. Um, I want to talk about particle accelerators and other things too. I mean, like I want to talk about big things in the world. And yes, I think I'll always source from my own personal experience because that's can make it relatable to people. But um, maybe my dad was right with me. Maybe I have done my autobiographical piece now and then I'm going to move on from it. I don't know. Who knows? But I, but it was funny. I was talking to um, Kevin Pollack the other day. No one else had ever said this to me. And because he knows the story of how when I tried to do my first solo show, made my dad uncomfortable and I decided not to do it. And Kevin said to me, yeah, but you hadn't had your class clown. Like you need to have your class clown if you're going to move on from your class clown. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I didn't. So I feel like this book is my class clown maybe. So you didn't do the show. I, my very first one, I didn't do the show in 99. I walked away from it. Because my, it, it made my dad uncomfortable. And he said to me, I'm an artist and you're an artist and I would never ask you to change it or not do it. But I'm not coming because it makes me uncomfortable because I talked about some of my childhood stories about my parents doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. And I, but I did it in a very, it was very lightweight compared to how I do it now. Did you feel like he was overreacting? I felt, well, I was so, I mean, this is really the story of my book. The story of my book is about how enmeshed I was with my family and how hard it was for me to really find a separate self. And so I always collapsed into what was best for the family to keep the family relationship happy and nice as opposed to standing apart from it and being more like my dad who was like, fuck you, I'm going to say whatever I want and be whoever I want in the world, Mm -hmm. which is very much the life he lived. So I lived his kind of unlived life, which is I just want everyone to be happy in the family. And so I, I felt like I didn't want to risk my relationship with my dad. So I put that first solo show on the shelf and I ended up going to grad school to become a Jungian like go. Niles. And it, and it worked out great. And I'm actually happy for it. I'm actually really glad my path took me that way and it delayed me in many different ways because I'm a much more sane, healthy person now that I'm out in the world telling my stories and talking about it. I can handle it. You know, I can handle the psychology of all of that and, and all the fan projection and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, it is easier when your parents leave the planet to, 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 to be a separate person. It just is. Oh yeah. Well, I'm in dead dad club too. And okay. you know, so I, I totally, I totally get it. Yeah. You, guys have, you like, understand. For that? What are you we, I, there should be a jacket. It is, for a, cl- dad club. It is a club though. <laughs> I mean, when you lose a parent, a lot of people came up to me when I lost my mom in 97 and they said, Welcome to the club. And I knew exactly what they meant by yeah. that because it's an experience <laughs> that until you have it, you don't get it. And now I have both parents are gone. And even it's been like seven years since my dad died. Just now I'm starting to deal with the whole like orphan, like, oh shit, like I don't have, I really don't. And I'm an only child. Yeah. So so there's not a senior re- grown up in your life that. There's my uncles and aunts that are still around. They're like, they're part of that generation. But it does, it kind of moves you up into the slot. Like you're the. Holy shit! There's a cliff eventually ahead of me, and I'm going to be next. Oh yeah, I know. I, I I felt half of it because all the senior men in my family are dead. Yes. Okay. Both grandfathers, yes. stepfather, and dad. Yeah. Four four dad figures dead, mm-hmm. and so uh, someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Your turn to jump, buddy." <laughs> it it is like that. You feel like you're like they're they're like you know, kind of you know. Uh, measuring you for your flight suit or something. What's <laughs> really interesting is it because I've been I've been talking about I've been talking about my dad being dead on stage mm. and it's been really great and he would have loved he my dad was dip, like he loved no matter what story I told he what? liked the 
vicarious attention. Uh-huh. But but your dad was a big deal, too, in his own world. I mean, uh, I don't... He was the George Carlin of bowling. He was! <laughs> which, in the bowling wrong. world, is huge. I'm, hey, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. My mom was born and raised oh, in Dayton, shit. Ohio. Oh, yeah, you're right in the bowling belt. <gasps> Hello? You're bowling in the bowling belt. My mother and I would sit around. This is one of our biggest joys. My mom had fibromyalgia, so she ached a lot, and she didn't get out of bed some days. I would go over to her house, and we would put bowling on TV. And it was one of our biggest joys, sitting around watching bowling on television. I'm telling you, there's a bowling belt that goes... Goes from like Illinois all the way down to Louisiana. I'm sure, absolutely. And, and it's all, and it's this kind of like, um, I don't know. The, the, I like in, that it's perpendicular to the Bible Belt. It, <laughs> it just bisects it. Yes, it completely. Just, it just fucks right through. And then it. somewhere it does, it does have a crossover. It does have a little bit of, <laughs> it does have a little bit of a crossover. Yeah, but it's really interesting. But there's this strip in the country that was very heavily, and these were a lot of uh, industrial towns. Makes total a, a, sense. A lot of them, you know. In the Rust Belt the now. The Rust Belt yeah. the, or the Mississippi River like, yeah. down there. And so there were a lot of these places. Bowling was the livelihood in the town. And yeah. so it was a, it's a really big deal. So when I meet people and they go, I grew up in Illinois or Ohio or Indiana, I go, oh, you're in the bowling belt. Yeah. And they go, yeah, we fucking we went bowling all the time. Of course we went bowling all the well, time. As a kid, I would uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, I was at the daycare at the Brunswick because my mother was in a uh, league. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I kind of always secretly wanted to be in a league. Again. I actually owned a bowling ball once, and I kind of secretly wanted to, like, be a part of a league. Maybe we should start a dead-dead league. <laughs> like, we should. Everyone has to have a dead-dead to be in the league. <laughs> so everyone understands I each other. That. Yes, we've bonded on a deep level but without even speaking. It is really interesting. There was a, there was a weird thing. Is like I was trying to figure out how to get into the dead-dead material. Yeah. And I would say... You know, I, I tried uh, joking my way into because once I get into it, it's all fine. Right. But it was just the transition. The transition, yeah. How do you go from something else that's relatively superfluous? How do you go from a fart joke to a dead dad? That's exactly that. But, but when it when you distill it, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And so I was experimenting, and I would say, uh, and then I started joking my way into it. I go, you know, my I, my dad drank a lot, but he finally quit when he died. And then and then there was a weird like the air would get sucked out of the yep. room, but I knew that was coming. Yeah. So I go, that's not an inappropriate reaction but it's okay to like so there was this so you like, named it you there was this the one man show at, but it <laughs> yes. wasn't stand- right yes and yes. i changed the tense ah but but autumn just by fucking around one time on stage instead of saying my dad died i said so my dad's dead and people laughed changing the tense wow and then people in the audience who also had lost their fathers they were laughing the hardest and it was the people who hadn't lost their fathers that were kind of that were the uptight. most uncomfortable about it but then they kind of came around too and so it's really interesting what is it about being that's... in dead dad club that's like you it it's not funny but you laugh about it and your people are like i know they're fucking dead you know like there's something that's really strange yeah. about that yeah. what is that well, I mean, the whole losing a parent thing anyway, I mean, I, I've been talking to people about this. You know, so there's the loss thing. There's the grief loss thing that's normal and appropriate. And, you know, especially if you were close to your parents. I mean, you know. And then there's this other thing that happens and occurs, which there's this space that's created on the planet because they're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And it... Like there's a little bit more like, oh, elbow room kind of feeling. And you don't want to say that to people who haven't had a parent who's died because they'll look at you like you selfish, whatever. But it's a it's a true thing that happens, you know, that no matter what, this person being on the planet has always, whether you're in relationship with them or not, 
is kind of right here. And and then when they die, they're kind of right here too because they're in your head already. Sure. <laughs> but there's there's something I don't know. There's it's like when you've been on. It's like that death thing. It's kind of for most of us, it's not real until someone really, really close to you dies and you have a loss, and then it's like. Oh, I've walked through that weird doorway that everyone right. talks about and we're all terrified of. And yet I've walked through it and I'm still here. I'm okay. Um, you know, I can joke about it. There's some silver linings to it, mm-hmm. you know? And but people in America, Americans especially, don't want to talk about death at all. It scares the hell out of them. So, um I, I don't know. I don't I think it's great that you're talking about it in your comedy act. I think it's fantastic. Well, I think it's, it's fun a- and it's, it's all, it's cathartic, but I also just think that, you know, with, with tragedy, I think it's, I think it really shows the importance of comedy as being a real biological function of how we process yes. the world and why it's so, da- why I feel like it's so dangerous that, you know, like comedy should be able to talk about a variety of things because it is about subverting power and dealing with tragedy and, and, you know, like we have, like being able to laugh about something gives you a, at least a sense of control or ownership over it. Yeah, so. I mean, I think it's a really important human um, s- s- coping mechanism. Because the alternative is we're just like a fucking just digging our eyes out <laughs> because we're so fucked. <laughs> I can't, I can't even look at the news anymore. Yeah, this is a terrifying and place. And there's an extreme. I mean, if it's if it's like all you ever do is joke and laugh about everything and can't like have any real emotion, that's an issue. Right. And if you can never laugh at yourself. That's an issue. So there's this beautiful, happy medium in the middle where you can take enough of it seriously and you can really learn to laugh at yourself. And I think there's this big, happy medium here that, you know, you have to kind of grow up into that, though. I mean, I remember growing up and I was a very serious kid. And my mother used to say, you know, lighten up, you know, learn to laugh a little bit about life. And I was like, no, I'm the one who holds all the despair and depression in the family. <laughs> oh, you were Lydia Dietz. <laughs> totally. Completely. I am utterly alone. I am, I am holding the darkness for my family because everyone's like just drunk and alcoholic hair. And, um, but now that I have matured into my middle years, um, yeah, there's a space where I've learned to laugh at myself and learn that I'm not to take my shit so seriously. And it's really, really important. I mean, you like you look at the terrorists, like you know, you look at ISIS, and you're like, these people don't take these. Do they, do they joke about anything? Do you think they're like in the terrorist camps, like training camps? Is there humor going on there? I don't think so. Probably I think those people are not. so fucking serious about everything. Maybe if we taught them to lighten up a little bit, the world would be a little safer. That's all you need to do. You just need to open a good open mic, right? Up, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, this is a great sketch. Just go to Radik. <laughs> And just just throw up an open mic shot. Come on, guys. Yeah, loose. Hey, it's uh, not great to be here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It writes itself. It writes itself. There's got to be a good fart joke that they can do. I mean, something. Yeah, everyone you know. farts. Right. Even terrorists. Even terrorists. Um, but I, I kind of think, you know, as as I'm thinking about comics and comedy, I, I do think there – it is a control. There's so much of a control issue. I think a lot of comics probably all have control issues. Because, yes, I agree. Because which is why a lot of them have you know um, drug and alcohol dependent, like whether it's alcohol, alcoholism and uh, and and obsessive yeah. and, and compulsion. Yeah, and- compulsion for sure. My dad was, I would say, 
borderline OCD. I mean, he used it for good in the end because he was very prolific and had a lot of notes and all of his files and everything like that and wrote everything down and had lists and files and things. And um, But very compulsive, my dad was. That's why when I think when you, you know, because you just made me think of it when you said about not taking things so seriously. And I thought, well, I wonder if George took everything really seriously. And my guess is that he probably did take a lot of things very seriously. He did. Uh, and I think that's – I wonder if it's because – a comic will not take themselves seriously when they are in control of not taking it seriously. But when someone else is coming at them, then then that's where it's like, oh, wait, no, fuck. You know, that's why we're, a lot of us are so sensitive because it's not – is that, 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 that the control that we have to give up. Uh, I agree. I mean I've been thinking a lot about that with this autobiographical nature of my work. Like I'm in control of how I communicate – my dirty, dark secrets of my life. Right. I get to control the narrative. But if someone exposed something and pointed a finger, you'd be pissed. It would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think that's why my dad had an issue with my very first solo show, because no matter what, he wasn't in control he of the storytelling. He wasn't in control of it. Yeah. You were talking about him and he wasn't in control yeah, of it. Yeah. He was a character in my story. And by all accounts, what you would assume that he would say to you is... I'm an artist. You be an artist. You talk about whatever you want. And he did say that, that ultimately. Ultimately, but, but he also could, didn't at the same time. But at the same time, he's like, but I can't come and support you. So he was basically saying, don't do it. Right. Right. <laughs> did you resent that? Um, I was kind of really crushed by it at the time. I was, because it was my first time to just putting my foot, my toe in the water of being a performer and getting on stage. It was right after my mom had died. And, and you know, my mom's death gave me one of those... Oh, holy shit. Death is real. I better, you know, shit or get off the pot. I was 35 years old and I hadn't really done the work that I f- wanted to be doing here. And so I got serious about it. And and part of it was telling these stories. And um, so I-, I was just more, I think, I was still in like really like child father relationship with my dad. I was, I didn't feel peer or equal to him, even though he was saying to me, I'm an artist and you're an artist and I respect that. I couldn't hear that at all. All I could hear was dad's not happy and I and my whole life all I've ever done is try to make my father happy A so he doesn't leave me and my alcoholic mom. Sure. <laughs> and B, he's my god, like he is everyone else's. He is my god. So Boy, that's such a strange thing to have to share your dad with the world. That's such a fucking weird and then also People, because my my interest isn't. I'm sure when people say, "What's it like to grow up with George Carlin's a dad?" They're sort of leading you to, "Wasn't it pretty great?" But I'm more interested in how did you navigate that, and so to to have to share the rest of the world sees this essentially one dimensional representation of who this man is. And how irritating is that when people (laughs) tell you because they feel like they have ownership and they start telling you about your dad, and you're like. Yeah, kind of fucking don't know what you're talking about, and you should probably shut up. You know, I mean, that's it's an interesting dance on social media for uh, sure. And if you say something truthful and someone tells you to shut up, that you and you're like, okay, I just got to, I got to back away. Well, and it was the scariest part about writing this book because my dad's fans are rabid. You know, the real fans are rabid, and they feel they own him and his perspective, and they 
are out there making the memes and throwing his things out and using videos and da 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 and and um and schooling me at times. <laughs> uh, I sent out a tweet. We've got some new items uh, for for the store for mm-hmm. my dad's site for this Christmas that I we're hoping to get up before Christmas. And someone wrote, "That's disgusting. You're selling your dad's stuff for Christmas." And I wrote back. I'm sorry, but my dad's been selling items uh, from his website for years and all holidays, and you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> like, accusing me of selling out my dad. I'm like, like I'm going to do anything to harm my father. Like, I'm not a fucking Carlin, right. you know, first and foremost, and with this deep integrity. Like, fuck you, dude, you know? So there is a little bit of that. Um, and But there was also a terror about... That one-dimensional thing, you know, they put him up on the pedestal and it's one-dimensional. And I have a line in my solo show that, you know, that I say, which is at when I did do the, the performances of my first solo show 15 years ago, people came up to me and was like, you know, oh, my God, your dad's so human and beautiful. I love him even more. You know, and my dad was just like a small part of my show. And I say that to people. And most of the time, people see my solo show that I've been doing the last four years. Provenza is my director. Provenza! Provenza is my director. He, he helped me develop this thing. It's a, it's, it's a great thing. Um, and it helped me write this book. But um, And people do. They come up to me and go, oh, my God, your dad is like – now I really know him as a man, as a father, as a husband, and especially from the book. But the funniest thing was I did a speaking gig last year. And this guy came up to me and I did that solo line, the solo show line, you know, my dad, people love my dad more at the end of it. And the guy came up to me and he goes, yeah, I just have to tell you, completely disappointed in your father now. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, and I'm standing there and I'm just like, and it's, I'm, I'm so glad I'm like who I am now and can like handle all of that and filter all of it because I'm thinking, and I said to him, yeah, it's kind of a little disappointing when our heroes come off of a pedestal. I get it. Also, the other side of this, do you really got to tell me that? Right. <laughs> you it's don't got to. so much more about him. Is there a dude with an overcoat behind you with a gun bulge? Yeah. Like, you're going to fucking tell oh, her? No, no. Or I'm going to shoot you in the back right. of the head? No, he, he wanted to do some damage. <laughs> I mean, yeah. people, when people say like they got to, they don't really got to. No. You don't really got to do no, that much. You know. You but I also think, I have this theory that, you know, it, that in the in the idolatry of of things deities yes. people whatever mm-hmm. i honestly believe that a per a substantial percentage of people actually believe the opposite of the thing that they they take away the opposite message from the thing that they claim to devote their lives to do you understand what i mean by that yes that it's that it's you know, like if you meet someone and they go, yeah, I'm just all about Jesus. And you're like, but you just discriminated against, well, you know what I mean? It's like, but he wouldn't do, you know what I mean? And I wonder if the same thing happens where people go, yeah, you know, I worship George Carlin, but then they completely twist his words to serve their. Yeah, exactly. So what, what do you think is the most common misinterpretation? Oh, uh, well, it's been a big, well, there's, I mean, the neocons love my dad because my dad said some very bold things that taken out of context. First of all, my dad does a big thing about the ownership of America. I think it was in 2006 he did this piece. It's all about business and how the, you know how we're we're not in the club and it's the owners and he really went after you know the billionaire class basically. And um some neocon like heritage foundation or something 
basically removed the word owners and business and put in the word government (laughs) and then rewrote it and put a picture of my dad next to it and put it up on Facebook. And so people, the fans are lovely. Some people, fans are sending it to me and like, and I'm like, what the hell? So I just went on Twitter and on Facebook and I just sicked all the George Carlin fans on the Heritage Foundation, which was really great. Um, But because that was blatant, that was horrible. But one of the things I get these days that happens is because of climate change and global warming, people quote my dad's, the planet is fine, the people are fucked. Mm -hmm. And they use that to say that George, even George Carlin thinks that trying to save the environment is bullshit. And really the whole that whole piece um was really founded on the premise that the people in the 60s who were originally trying to save the planet all turned into yuppies in the 80s and that they're really not interested in saving the planet for the planet they're interested in saving the planet for their own convenience right and that was the, that was the real point he was making it's a more subtle point and he was also saying that really after the species we do go whenever that is the planet will be fine well that is the thing is that like, the planet is a planet it really is just about which consequences do you want. Like ultimately, we can cause a lot of damage to the planet to the extent that we will wipe ourselves out. Right. But after, you know, We're gone. several hundred thousand Oof. years, the planet will reset yes. and start over in some way. Completely. Like, and, not, and, in, and like, well, Mars didn't really reset. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, yeah. A couple of million years, though, you know. Uh, but, Earth but, will yeah. be fine, Matt. Earth's going to be fine. Know, it Chris. is. It will be right. Please, Matt. Sorry, Have Matt. you ever seen Life After People? <laughs> I sure have. So, yeah, that's the biggest misconception I get that I'm always kind of batting down on on, on social media and stuff. Um, but, you know, people people get my dad for the most part. I guess, but it just must be a – it must be a tough – it must be kind of a frustrating position to be in where if you publicly talk about your dad, people are like, well, you're just trying to capitalize. And if you yes. don't talk, like, why do you want to talk about your dad? And it's like, yeah. oh. Oh, yeah, there's just no way to make everyone and, happy. And, 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 you know, about five years ago, before I did the solo show, Provenza and I talked about this because I had gone and played some videos of my dad and told some family stories on this cruise ship with Lewis Black. And everyone was like, <laughs> oh, my God, you got to go out and do this. And I'm like, ooh, that is like the slimiest thing in the world to go out and like do a PowerPoint presentation of my dad and tell family stories. But then Provenza and I got together. He's like, no, this could be a really beautiful thing, actually. And Provenza's got like the biggest bullshit meter detector, you know, ever. And we had this incredible conversation. He says, you know, and he goes, he said to me, he said, you know, you could walk away from this legacy, from this conversation. You could never talk about your dad again and not promote his things and not be a part of it and just go off and have your life with Whatever it is. And and I said, yeah, I could, but I'd still wouldn't have really dealt with it. I would just be avoiding the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I decided to walk through the fire of it to find out what it was like coming out the other end of it. And so part of walking through the fire was having to deal with both of those sides. Why, you know, why are you talking about him? You're just, you know, uh, hanging onto his coattails and you're just using his legacy to forward your career or whatever. And then the people who are like, you know, uh, want to know everything and want to know more than I would ever be willing to tell anyone, you know? And, and so I've had to find my comfort zone in it. And I've had to find the reason to tell my story. And 15 years ago when I wanted to first tell my story, it has nothing to do with my fucking dad. It had to do with the fact that I've survived uh, depression, anxiety, agoraphobia, abusive relationships, a cocaine addiction, 
um, cr- the, the crazy thing that growing up a celebrity does in your head with your ego and your own narcissism, growing up on the west side of L.A. I mean, I survived a lot of crazy shit. And yes, I have a few great stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a survivor. You know, as they say in AA, I wanted to share my experience, strength and hope, you know, and that's why I wanted to write my book, you know, not and yeah, my dad's a character in it. He's my dad. Uh, I can't help that. Right. I really can't. I'm sorry. You don't choose the balls you fire out of. I don't. <laughs> I did not choose the loins that I came from. I mean, I don't know why I didn't understand that analogy. <laughs> I thought of a, like, the, my brain immediately was like thinking of American Gladiators with the <laughs> tennis ball gun. I was like, balls you shoot out. What is. Well, you shoot out a ball. What, are you, what, is that, what does that mean, Chris? <laughs> that was my brain. I was thinking of like laser. I'm surprised you didn't go to the one in the hamster balls. Like, you know, oh, like the right. And the hamster, we're all just gladiators in a hamster ball. Yes. But uh, I, I do kind of feel like that. We are gladiators in a hamster ball. And it's how do we... We are. How do we navigate our hamster ball? How do we beat lace? How do we beat... <laughs> yeah, really. Because is, is she beatable? I don't know. I don't think so. And really... It was laser. Yeah. Tank. Turbo. Was there a turbo? There was a turbo. There had to have been a turbo. There was probably a nitro. A nitro. (laughs) Then there was then there was just like a big fat guy called like viscosity, (laughs) and he just like, but he was such. He could absorb anything. He absorbed anything. (laughs) You could. It was really hard to take down. You just pelt him, and it just like everything. He would just absorb the. He stayed in the ball. They could never get him out. Could never get him out. No, there's no getting him out. (laughs) <laughs> it would just sort of squish things through the mesh. <laughs> giant Q-tips. That was a lot of fun, that show. But uh, but I, but I, I'd love to know because you just said like ten things that I want to and I want to explore. Parse them. Many of them. Okay. First of all, how did you? What? How did you change your perception, or what clarity did you get having studied so much psychology, having mm-hmm. done so much recovery? Yes. When you got through all of that and you looked back at your life and your relationship with your family, what changed? What, what, what new coping mechanisms did you have? And then how did you kind of – how did you sort your family in your head after that? Yeah. Well, for me, it was really about separating myself out from the past. You know, the, the past can be very triggery to people and people who have been through some traumatic, weird stuff. You – uh you know, you kind of carry that around and it kind of fires in your body that way. So learning, I like with the panic attack disorder, like I had to physically learn how to reality check myself all the time. No, you are not dying. Your heart is palpitating and you've got a thousand pounds of adrenaline running through your veins, but there's no lion chasing you. You know what's so funny about panic attacks is that when you get them, you've had them a million times and still some part of your brain goes, but what if this is the one? Fucking A, yes. Yeah, every, every time, time you know, yeah. and when you're not having them, you're like, well, I know what they are. But right. then you get it and you're like, no, I think this one's different. This, this every is it. fucking tricks you every time. Yeah, yeah. And really having to walk myself a- away from that cliff over and over again and really like, no, this is, this is you know, and, and, and so, so it, it's that analogy, though, with everything else. It's like really reality testing and, and finding out, like, who am I separate from these people? And... There was just for me, it was just a deeper sense of my individual self. I mean, you know, Jung has this concept of individuation where we drop our family stories, we drop our cultural stories of who we're supposed to be, and we figure out, you know, who we are, you know, our soul, whatever that 
means, but that sense of like our unique self that, yeah, is shaped by all this stuff, but isn't contingent on all this stuff anymore. Sure. sure. And, 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 and it just, it, it took me until my forties to really start doing that and really having a sense of myself. And then when my dad died, it gave me a chance to explore that in my relationship with my dad. Who am I separate from him, even though I am his kind of face and voice right now and helping promoting his DVD for his thing or the Mark Twain thing or whatever, and then telling my own story. And and it's 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 such a subtle thing, but it's like just a I mean, part of it is an inner, you know, what they say, what is it? It's an inside job. Isn't mm-hmm. that what they always say? In a, it's an inside job. So part of it You're is... You're talking about 9-11. Yes, of okay. course. Right. The 9-11 in my head. Okay, good. <laughs> but you know what else it takes? It, and, I, you know, and I'll just use another stupid phrase. It really does take a village because it was something about the comedy world. I didn't know any comedians before my dad died. We didn't hang out with comedians. I didn't hang out... At comedy clubs growing up as a teenager, I was into disco. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I was not a comedy nerd. I didn't study comedy. I didn't I didn't watch a lot of it. I'd watch every once in a while. My dad would turn me on to someone and, and that would be great. Um, but comedians came into my life after my dad died. Um, and I connected deeply with them. And what happened for me was this kind of refathering in the sense that a lot of them were men. Um and some of them were really famous, some of them not so famous, but they all saw me as a separate person. They didn't see me as George's daughter. They didn't try to like have a relationship with me because it was some sort of conduit to my dad. They were interested in helping me find my way and being a shoulder to cry on if I needed it and to really explore my own voice. And that's something my my dad never mentored me because my dad was a laissez-faire dad. He was like, you're brilliant. Do whatever you want in the world. You can do anything, which might be okay for some people. But for me, it just made me feel more lost because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing in the world. I'm afraid to try everything. And especially when your identity is completely overshadowed Com- by – Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, anything going towards entertainment, I would do like two steps forward, three steps back. It would like just scare the shit out of me, even though that's where my heart is. I'm I'm a freak like the rest of you people here. <laughs> and, um, and so these – these comedians and mostly male comedians, them coming into my life and really saying, you, it's your turn, Kel. We want to hear from you. What are you? What's your perspective? What's the next generation of our hero? Yes, he's our hero. But what's going on inside of you? What do you have to say? And you've got you've got heart and you've got a different perspective and you have a feminine perspective and you have a different generation. Who are you? And we're here to help you step up into your place. That really helped me too. It really does, I think, take a community around you to support you in being an artist. You know, it's it's not a lone wolf thing all the time. You have to be a lone wolf in, in what you want to say and how you want to say it. And ultimately, you have to go out on your own. You're out there on the stage by yourself. But um, for me, it has been a real communal uh, experience. You know, it's I, – I just hope that people understand with hero worship <laughs> that, you know, George will always be the most brilliant – one of the most brilliant comedians of all time and yes. a guy that completely changed the way comedy is done and a guy that had – I mean, his work ethic was ridiculous. Yes. I mean, it's funny to see, you know, people like Louis chasing it, you know, like see people chasing George yeah. so much. But at the same time – I think people should be smart enough to remember, like, 
he was a, a guy. Like, he was just a guy. He was a brilliant guy, but he's a human being. Yep. You know? Absolutely. And I think it's probably healthy for you that people understand that he was a human being and not this, like, oh, my God, you grew up with Zeus? And it's like... <laughs> No, he was you because know. I have in this F, in this process have had to take Zeus off the fucking throne, <laughs> you know, and 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 that is part of growing up is taking your parents off of the pedestal or undemonizing them. Either way, whatever your relationship with is your with your parents. I think what you're referring to is also is leveling your yes. relationship. Well said. Whether it's up or down and you know because if you're pro- you know with the with the worship part and we you were talking about it earlier the projecting part we project our greatest aspects of ourselves onto that whether it's a god or a celebrity or your parent all the light is on and you think oh they know everything and so all the darkness is here and so but it's about taking back those qualities like, you know what i have as much wisdom or i've got insight about this or i've got enough power and it's the same thing with when we demonize people. It's like, you know, we're all murderers inside of us somewhere. We all have that in us. So you have to own every part of yourself. And so it is completely leveling it all out, ultimately, I believe. I want to hear what you're – because you used the word narcissism a couple of times. And, and I feel like I have a couple of different concepts of what that is. I mean I, – There's I've, healthy narcissism and unhealthy There's healthy narcissism. And I feel like there is a – I feel like sometimes when people use the term – narcissism they really just kind of mean well we're a little self-centered egocentric egocentric yeah. yeah but i've but i've met people who are clinically narcissistic for sure and that is a much different and feels really weird to be oh, around it's so fucking weird it's slimy it is i yeah. mean it's like you can like get it in your body you well, feel it it's like you're talking to someone and you can feel your words are just bouncing <laughs> off their <laughs> yes, eyes yes. because they don't have any concept of anything outside zero they it's have... different than being a little egocentric where you go i just want people to pay attention to me versus there's nothing i i am the center of everything yep. literally and I bear no responsibility for any of my actions. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a three-year-old in an adult's body. Kind of, yeah. Because a three or two or three-year-old, they really have no concept that the, that they are not the center of the universe. They really, I mean, that whole two terrible twos. That's what it's about. It's like, no, me, it, now, you know. Did and, you break that pot? No. <laughs> exactly. But there's video. I didn't do it. No. Well, you I, made me do it, and it's like I, I mean, like yeah. So that type of. Clinical narcissism is really scary. It is very scary. And uh, a lot of them run Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) And big corporations. Like the people who can, you know, be okay with getting rid of 20,000 jobs in their their company or like going into a company to help them save money and getting rid of 20,000 jobs. I think you have to have a little bit of that narcissistic personality disorder to really not be able to feel the pain of all of that, or they've completely shut them down from it. But yeah, and there's a healthy narcissism too. I mean, there's a healthy bit of like learning that it's okay that I am an I and that I need to take care of myself. I mean, a lot of, you know, this is especially a thing for a woman, you know, a lot of our thing is about we just kind of pour ourselves into every relationship, into everything, and we don't have a sense of self, and therefore, you know, we're anorexic or whatever we do. Um, and, and there's a lot of men like that too, but in the culture, we're kind of trained as women to do that more. Um, so there's some sense of like learning how to unemesh yourself from a system and become a separate self and and have a healthy sense of ego, a real healthy, you know, without an ego, you can't function in the world. You can't hold a job. You can't know how to have a conversation with people. You have to have a, a personality that's 
formed in some way. But like you said, there's then this sh- this sh- shady gray area that leads to the personality disorder, which is when you have no ability to relate to other people or can't empathize with other people. Right. That's the one thing, the empathy thing. It's really important. Yeah. And, 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 and then you get into like sociopath further along the scale there because or, there's no sense of empathy. Or if you, or if you only are able to experience sort of a, a feigned empathy because empathizing somehow benefits you in some way. It's like, that's, yes, that's kind of fucked up too. And this, I mean, it's really interesting about like being out in the world as a public figure. Like I've been experiencing this for the last seven years and being on this book tour in particular, there was like two weeks where all I did is I went out and talked about myself for like four or five times a day. You you know, you're promoting something and everything. I am pretty rad. And yeah. And then, and it's not even the rad (laughs) thing, but it's like, suddenly it's like, that's all you know how to do. Like there's, 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 there's no other functioning thing. And I think when you like in, especially in this town, when people start to become only yes people around you and suddenly it's like, you know what? I can't eat anything but chicken chopped this way in the salad because I'm in, I'm in a hurry and my car needs to be washed on Wednesday and why didn't you get it done? I, it's like it starts to feed into that narcissistic self and I think we can fall into that uh, a little easier in this town than anywhere else because sure. it gets it gets promoted. It gets – it's like it becomes the norm. I mean – like if you this is like this this industry is one of the least mental health family friendly industries I know, except for maybe like canning factories where you have to work <laughs> twelve hour shifts or something. But it's like they don't care. It's you know, twelve hour shifts, you know. My my husband's a cameraman on a sitcom. You know, they don't care. It's twelve hours, you go home, you you're awake for two hours, you eat something, go to sleep, wake up and boom, and it's all over again, you know, and you're you don't have time to like go to your kids' play or anything. It doesn't matter. We've got a we've got a TV show to put on. This is more important than anything. Now, this is a very personal question. But when you and your husband are, when you and your husband are intimate, do you have to go go to two, <laughs> go to one? Okay, pull out. All right, push in. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so doing that now. I'm so glad you were delighted by that instead of horrified. That's fucking great. (laughs) Go wide, go wide, go go wide, go wide. wide. (laughs) And cut, we got it. Uh, We're good, we're good. We're good. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. It's It's a a wrap. She came. She came. Got a couple of notes. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple, though, really. You're doing great. You're doing great. You're doing good. You're doing good. Uh, <laughs> Which sitcom does he shoot? A kid's show. Oh. oh. I'm actually surprised it's not on this lot because there's a ton of kids' shows on uh, this he lot. He does gamers on the north part of this lot sometimes. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. The kids' universe, according to gamers. I don't know. Something gaming. So, guide. what were some of the. Um, what were. So you said. Before you go, well, there were some good stories. Like, what's a good story? Okay, so here's a good story. So um, my parents between like 72 is when my dad's class clown, all that stuff came out. And he was like, became like the counterculture god guy. Mm -hmm. Long hair, hippie guy, went from the straight comedy to that. And um, my mother had been an alcoholic for all, almost during my entire life. And was uh, not a fun drunk to be around. And... uh, 
And then a lot of cocaine came into the house because it was 72, 73, 74, 75. And cocaine was good back then and pills and LSD and everything. So my parents were doing a lot of drugs and alcohol and arguing a lot with each other. And it became this real theme in our family. I was the only child. I was the mediator. We'd gone to Hawaii. They brandished knives at each other. I sat down. I freaked out finally and had them. I wrote out a UN style peace treaty, had them <laughs> sign it, lasted 20 minutes, of course. So right after we came home from this big Hawaii vacation, uh, it was the first morning we were back. It was probably like Easter vacation time. And my dad came into my room and woke me up and said, Kelly, I have something important to tell you. Now, I was convinced he was going to say that we're leaving mom and we're going to get her sober finally because my dad was like really functioning guy. My mom. And how old were you at this point? I was uh, about nine years old, nine or ten. And... um, Jesus, and you had to. Oh my God! Yeah, that's a lot to show. It's very intense. Of course, you're the peacekeeper. I was totally the peacekeeper, and so I really thought my because my dad and I were always trying to figure out ways to get my mom to not drink. So I thought he he was going to say like, "We're leaving, mom. We're going to get her sober by doing this because we have to do this." I was like ready for this full thing, and instead he said to me, "I think the sun has exploded, and we have about seven minutes to live." So being the good, dutiful daughter that I was, uh, at first I was like, what? (laughs) You know, trying to like move that through my mind. And then it was like, okay, I don't know if that's true or not, but he's my dad. And he's like my dad. He's like this brilliant man. So maybe we should go outside and check and see if he's right. So my mom and dad and I, we did. We went outside. My parents had these really thick blackout curtains in their living room so they could sleep all day because they're doing coke all night. And we so and we just been in Hawaii. So we like we go outside and this is like seventy three around there. We go outside and it's one of those horrible, glary, smoggy L.A. days. And in the seventies, the smog was even worse. And it was the kind of thing. Where, and your eyes were like, oh my god, it's like really bright and it's glary and it's bad and smoggy and it's like wow maybe he's right like holy shit like who fucking knows right (laughs) but i'm like trying to be the mediator the calm down and everything and i'm like i don't know well maybe it's just like you know hawaii sun's different than la sun and you know my mom's like yeah well maybe it's because you haven't fucking slept for two weeks you know and i'm you know probably the truth my dad i think had been up for probably four days and was having a bit of a psychotic break and uh so my dad decides that he needs to check and see if this is going on anywhere else. He's going to call a friend. <laughs> it's the sun blowing up where you are. And so he says, you know, he, and he even, and this is even the rationalization around this. He goes, you know, we could call Doc in New York, but it's a three hour time difference. And there really might be like a difference in the sun. Like, so we need someone on this coast. <laughs> and so he calls his friend, Joe Bellardino in Sacramento. And there I am, I'm 10 years old, sitting on the end of my parents' bed, listening to my dad have a phone conversation with his friend about, hey, so um, do you think he could go outside and check and see if the sun is okay? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah. Hey, what's going on? Not yeah. much. Yeah, not yeah. much. Yeah, but, I, I, but I need you to hurry because I think we got about four minutes now. Sun blowing up where you are? Yeah, how's it looking out there? Okay. Looking okay? And then at what point did he... He, he kind of... He... Yeah, Joe kind of talked him off the edge you know it's like yeah i think i think it's okay george i think we're okay i think everything's gonna be fine oh my but God. now you know it's like you walk away from that and the way i i talk about it uh 
in the book and in my show is like, and now like I have this realization is like, either the news is good and the sun hasn't exploded, but my dad has completely lost his mind or the news is bad and the sun is exploding, but my dad's a genius because he's figured out something that has to do with the speed of light. (laughs) (laughs) What what was the transition for him from uh, going from the straight comic to the counterculture guy? Like, I'm always interested to hear when a comic kind of locks into their thing. Well, he'd always been... The counterculture guy on the inside, smoking weed since he was 14, hanging out with jazz musicians, grew up in Irish Harlem, Manhattan, Upper West Side, um, hanging out with folk musicians in the in the village in the early 60s, hanging out with Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, all those people. So on the inside, that's who he was. But he had this Danny Kaye dream to be a real straight, famous comedy actor at some mm-hmm. point and he really in the and back then in the 60s tv was really the only route to fame you know ed sullivan carson and all that kind of stuff um so he was this guy on the inside and it worked great for a while he had a lot of success we moved to la you know we were it was the hollywood dream it was the it was the american dream we were living it um because when i was born my parents were Poor, poor, poor. Had no money. We had a hot plate in New York City in a one-room apartment. Um, so he come to, come, came to L.A., got famous, was doing a ton of television, was, you know, Carson making Carson fall off his chair, the whole thing. Um, but then about 67, 68, you know, as the world started changing and the revolution of what was going on culturally was happening around him all of his friends who were musicians were able to speak out about all this kind of stuff and my dad kept having to go on tv and do the hippie dippy weatherman right and no one's letting him evolve he's he's writing new material but he's coming on and the producers are going just do that indian sergeant bit again we love that you know and so he tried to modify it a little bit and he tried to do but he just kept getting jammed back into that square that everyone wanted him to be in and finally, in 69, he dropped acid about 25 times. Oh, and wow. And it completely, completely shifted everything for him. And he fully stepped into the perspective of like, oh, A, we're all – I'm all one with everything. And he had that big spiritual thing. But also, everything's bullshit. It's all bullshit. And um, – which is where he ended up actually 50 years later. Hmm. But um, – and – Went to my mom and said, I can't do it anymore. And, you know, he was getting fired in Vegas for saying shit on stage when Red Fox was up the street doing triple X shows at midnight. You know, yeah. I mean, it was just it was such a, about a much so much hypocrisy. Going Vegas on. hasn't really changed. You're not allowed to swear no. on stage. It's a very respectable. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, my dad got fired in the early 2000s from MGM Grand because he was doing a whole bit about autoerotic asphyxiation. Are you in the two in 2000s? In 2000s. And because a Christian owns the. MGM Grand uh, Hotel Group. A Christian owns it. Let's, oh. ju- let's just let that settle down. <laughs> if there's some- one thing Jesus loved, it was gambling. Right? Yeah. And somebody somebody wrote a letter. Well, my dad was famous in Vegas for emptying out half the half the audience anyway. But anyway. Seriously, that's so Hey, but they all yeah. paid. That's right. They all paid the 60 bucks for his. That's right. Um, if they leave. So, so he he had just he just got done with it. And so he had he'd um he's a great story in his memoir uh 
his memoir is called Last Words. And he's got a great story. And when he talks about he had like a contract with the Playboy clubs and he was doing the like Copacabana Playboy. He had all the great Those contracts. Those were fucking cool at one they point. They were cool and they were hip, but they you couldn't do any social commentary stuff. They were squares. He knew suddenly he was entertaining the parents of the people he actually was hanging out with and wanted to entertain. <laughs> and that's that was his big realization. So there he is like at the Playboy Club and he starts, he goes on stage and he does some Vietnam bit or something. And um, someone like threatens his life at one point. And another time he's like laying under the piano describing the body. He's trying to get fired, you know, and they won't fire him. And But he finally came home to my mom and he said, I can't do it anymore. I, I'm walking away from all of this. And, and he did. And um, he said to her, I'd rather know that I'm in coffee houses because there were no comedy clubs back then. I'd rather know I was in coffee, coffee houses doing, you know, hoot nanny open mics and doing the material that I want to be doing in front of 10 people than being on a stage in front of, you know, 500 people of people I don't want to, that I, that I hate and that I don't want to talk to. And he made the leap and he grew his hair out. He grew his beard out and he did the FMAM album. And that was his way of, doing a nod to his audience saying here's the am side here's the hippy dippy weatherman here's the indian sergeant here's all the great bits you loved me for and now here's the fm side and this was the more it was the more counterculture side it was the counterculture side and that was his transitional album where he was you know saying i'm making a transition here it is in black and white the lesson here is drop acid 25 times yes (laughs) for sure I do. I just think it's interesting that there is such a you know like some people have this superstitious connection between you know you have to do substances to be creative or you have to do this or or like you said like comedy you have to be miserable and it's like I don't know if there's you, there's no rules for anything there's no rules for no. anything and I don't think you have to no. be anything no and, you know I, I, I've met great comics no who are miserable rules just right up X Tacos sponsor <laughs> the podcast <laughs> what. They're not sponsoring the podcast. I just need more sponsors. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's trolling for sponsors. <laughs> Fuck yeah. you in the blooming onion outback steakhouse. There, I just ruined How your opportunity. You. I just no ruined. Rules. That's right. They don't mind if you say that. No rules. They yeah. See, no rules. Whatever you want to say. Oh my god. Wait, there's no rules. Yeah, no, there there isn't. And uh, and and with any substance, I mean, more wisdom from my dad. At the beginning, when you do substances, there's there's some benefit to it possibly but that usually goes away quickly if you keep doing it every day and it's hard to not do it every day for most people that would do it i mean there are some people that don't have a predisposition to addiction i yes you know, god bless them but <laughs> <laughs> not me but a lot of i know me too yeah but uh and i even st- you know and it's funny to see how it manifests in different ways like you know the the substance is really I'm on a cookie thing this week. I just, I can't stop. Please, someone, I need rehab. <laughs> You're just Can I the do cookies? a chocolate cookie rehab, please? I need one really bad. I mean, of all the things that you could be doing. Right, I know. You could be doing worse things. I, this is And this is the great rationalization as I walk into the kitchen at 10 p.m. at night. Just two more. It's not heroin. It isn't heroin. You know what, though? That is a true statement. It's not it is. heroin. But it goes so much better with heroin. You know. I mean, no, I don't know. I've never done heroin. heroin. Me neither. Thank God. I knew enough not to Guys, do heroin. Guys, let's try it. <laughs> heroin sponsors the podcast. It doesn't. <laughs> Outback, Outback Steakhouse. China White. <laughs> China White sponsors. Sp- Blue and Onion is a type of white heroin. Yes, it is, actually. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
By the way, it, you would never eat at a steakhouse on the actual outback. It's a lot of it's uninhabitable. And you can't grow anything you out can't there. Grow, well, come on. I mean, I guess you can. I guess there's cattle somewhere. Yeah, you can what are the cattle calves? eating out there? There's nothing out there. Blooming onions. <laughs> the onions bloom in the outback. That's what they, that's what they eat. It smells terrible, but they're delicious. They literally bake in their own juices. Fried anything. Surf and turf. I'm sorry. Right fried now anything. At the outback steakhouse. <laughs> uh, your book, which is available, is it's available everywhere. Now. It's been available for two and a half months. A I've Carlin talking, Home Companion. Yes, a Carlin Home Companion. A nod to our great friends over there at NPR, <laughs> Garrison Keeler. You're listening to. <laughs> a Carlin Home. A Carlin Home Companion. Isn't that weird? They made a movie about that. Oh, what's happening? It looks like the sun might be exploding. <laughs> here in, here in Lake Wobegon. Wobegon. Let's call explodes. up Lake Wobegon and find out if their sun is also <laughs> exploding. He's not wrong, too. So about seven minutes is how long it would take to get. Oh no! It's it's. it's I think it is yeah. the the speed of there light. There was real is, science behind exactly his paranoia. Yeah, the speed of light is. Yeah, no, Dad was on it. Dad's a science guy. Dad's a science guy. <laughs> what's He's your on... favorite thing about? What was your favorite? What's your favorite thing about him? About my dad? Yeah. Oh wow. Um. There, I guess. Well, two things. One of which was, he was really sentimental, to the point where he would write things down in like his calendar book, like in my twenties, when I moved into my house with my first husband, he wrote down Kelly's first day in her new house. Like I have that calendar that oh, says that. Oh, that's great. And, um, he was very, very sentimental about stuff like that. Um, so that was just this really sweet part of him. Um, and I loved sharing, a joke with him, sharing humor. You know, there's something about when you share humor with someone, there's a deep, deep resonance with them. And there's stuff that he does on stage and I can't even usually identify it unless I'm watching some of the shows. It's a little in-between phrase he does as, I, I don't know what the, the correct like technical term is, but like after you've done a joke and then you say like another phrase. That Segway. Kind of, Okay, like, and not even a true a segue, a but maybe a button or a tag. Yeah. yeah. His little buttons and tags would have almost nothing to do with it, but it'd be a little throwaway thing. That was the humor that he and I shared. Like, that was personally his thing that he was just putting out there because it amused him. No one else would maybe get it. Um, stuff like that. There's just little things that most people don't laugh at about his stuff that was like, that's the Carlin. That's the Carlin in me. Um, and that makes me warm and fuzzy inside. Oh, yeah. what a nice way to end the podcast. Yeah, warm and fuzzy. Jungian psychology. make you warm and fuzzy? Snuggies, our newest sponsor. <laughs> they're not, uh, just because you say someone is a sponsor doesn't mean they, that they're... No, I don't they think he understands they the process this is how works, of how right? that works. No, this is... They I'm going to ruin all these. What are you talking about? <laughs> Snuggies, you can come in them. <laughs> they don't mind. You've got to buy it to come in it. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's true. Yep, Snuggies, you gotta buy it to come in it. That's wow. actually not a bad... Use the promo code NERDIST <laughs> <laughs> to get 20% off your Snuggie cum rag. It is, it's like coming into a cloud. Adults have been coming in them for decades. Has this ever happened to you and it's just a guy trying to come into a boring jacket? <laughs> 
It's like that before and after. Comrade got you down? (laughs) There's got to be a better way. (laughs) And then I'm like trying to think of mechanics of actually masturbating. For a woman, you could maybe masturbate through the Snuggie, but I don't think for a guy it would work as well. You don't jerk off with it. You jerk off onto it. Onto it. Okay. Or into it. Or into it. Or while wearing it. Okay. All right. All right. Listen. Now the visual is clear it's not lost on me it's not lost on me that we basically just took the most beautiful memory of you and your dad (laughs) and then landed on a cum joke so this is why that is my mutant power this is why even though i don't do stand-up i must be around comedians (laughs) because i am that freak also i belong here well thank welcome to dead dad club thank you darling uh thank you so much for being here thank you for having me to sponsor this podcast anytime you guys no one is sponsoring no she is she said (laughs) i'm she just said that, that, but that was only that minute right there. Yeah, that was there. it. Sorry, sponsored the minute. You can buy blocks. <laughs> just uh, use the PayPal. Just minute. PayPal us some money. Anything. Kyle sponsoring. You know, us. I would also like to point out that even if all this sponsorship stuff works, you're not getting most of that money, Matt. I don't understand. I know we are the only podcast on the network without a fair ad share. I get it, but uh, <laughs> Kyle's great. He's sponsoring me. Yeah. Kyle's my sponsor. I'm Kyle from Matt Myers. <laughs> Tired of the old Matt Myers, we got new Matt Myers. <laughs> and bonus, Matt. Hey. <laughs> Gotta have the bonus episodes. Use the promo code Nerdist. Use the promo code Matt Myra. Promo code Matt Myra gets you 20% more. It costs, <laughs> it costs more oh. if you use my promo code. No, that's weird. When I went to check out, this was... That, uh, yeah, yeah no, that's just my piece, guys. Thank oh. you. I mean, I understand. Can I I'm work just on a, a promo code with somebody. Who's you know, our sponsor on this episode? Just a regular guy yet? trying to buy a cum snuggie on a yes, Wednesday, right? Yes. Who is our actual sponsor for this episode? We don't know yet. Oh, for this one. Yeah, do we know? We, oh, don't, we know don't know yet. yet. All right. We, it, we'll, see, we'll know what a like good job day. we just did there for them. Yeah, they're I so happy they're sponsoring this hour. Be into putting a Matt Meyer promo code where they just charge twenty percent more. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you can hack that shit. I'll see if I can do. Uh huh. You just have yeah. You set up the this this point of sale type. Yeah. Scenarios, yeah. like a revision. This is, the, and by the way, this is the bonus track of this podcast right now. This oh, conversation, no, this is all attached to this. Oh, okay, podcast. all right. Just checking. <laughs> we don't edit. We make it real messy on the end. Well, and just but, like the snuggie. And, and I just, oh, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Please, and I, gentlemen, please. And hurrah! Hurrah! And, and I do have to say that I was a little nervous coming here because I didn't know, you know, the whole nerdist thing, and I'm not a huge nerd. But I knew the one thing I could share with you was that when I did see the first trailer. Of the new Star Wars movie, my nipples got hard. Oh, there see, you there go. you go. Who's didn't? It Listen. was amazing. Like, I'm like, I said to my husband, my nipples just got hard. Yeah. You're bra- and then he goes, Count Really? <laughs> Cut some one. Zoom in. Zoom, zoom in. Zoom in. Zoom in. Zoom in. Pull out, pull out, pull out, pull out. Too close, too close, too close. <laughs> I finished inside the scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I think your brain may not be a nerd, but your body has betrayed you. Your body might be a nerd. Well, I think I was 14 when I first saw Harrison Ford in the first one. So I think I pubescent memories have oh, something yeah. to do with it, Those too. never go away. No, they no, don't. they don't, Gina Davis, they in a league of their own. They'll never. <laughs> exactly. How about it's Gina Davis, makes, Gina Davis what, in The Fly? It's yeah. what makes you come in a Snuggie. <laughs> Gina Davis? Well, your 14-year-old puberty yeah, memories. Yeah, well, this podcast is brought to you by Gina Davis. <laughs> I support that. <laughs> I support that. All right. America. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. 
Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.